hey, Christian, you are forgiven, and you are righteous, and you are loved. Perhaps you need to hear that at the outset of this sermon. If you are a Christian and you are in union with Christ and you believe what he has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection is what makes you right with God, then you are forgiven of all of your sins, every single one. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus cannot remember your sins. And maybe you forgot that truth Maybe because there's voices in your head telling you otherwise. Maybe the devil is whispering to you, Jesus couldn't love you. Jesus doesn't love you. You call yourself a Christian and look at the things that you do. Maybe those are the voices that are swirling in your head this morning. Maybe you struggled to worship because of all the voices stirring in your head and in your heart. But you are righteous and blameless in God's sight. The good news of the gospel is that when God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus, and you are loved with an everlasting, never stopping up, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever burning love. The good news of the gospel is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and this is your identity Christian so maybe you need that at the beginning of the sermon may the burden of your sin be lifted by the Holy Spirit even right now may that heaviness be lifted and now just sit back and be loved on by Jesus okay we are forgiven and we are righteous And we are loved. So let's look at God's word where we will see once again that God is opening his heart to us. That's what happens every single time we open the Bible. The infinitely glorious God who dwells in in unapproachable light, immortal, all-powerful. When we open the Bible, that God is opening his heart to us, to people like us. A God like that wants to open his heart to people like us. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. As you turn there, let me remind you that in ancient Israel, the king was to be the moral compass of the nation. He was to be the representative of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the true king. And if the king's heart turned away from the Lord then the rest of the nation would follow and their hearts would turn away. And that's exactly what happened over the course of the books of First and Second Kings. That's how the original audience of this book ended up in exile. Recall and remember, if you will, why First and Second Kings is being written. It's to explain to the original audience, the nation of Israel, why they ended up in exile as slaves in Babylon. And if you're familiar with the story of Solomon, then you know that his reign as king of Israel has a tragic ending. His heart turns away from the Lord. Solomon does not remain faithful to Yahweh. He amasses numerous wives 
who eventually play a role in turning his heart away from true devotion to the Lord. You can read about that in 1 Kings 11. Solomon goes from being wholehearted to being wholehearted, having a hole in his heart. Solomon ends up turning away from the Lord precisely because he amassed over 700 wives and 300 concubines. I think we're just so familiar with those numbers. I was struck by them again as I was reading my manuscript this morning. I was like, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Wrap your brain around this, Benji. I just know those numbers because I've read the Bible. And I was struck by them again this morning. In fact, we will read later on in chapter 11 that when Solomon amassed 700 wives and 300 concubines and his heart turned away from the Lord, it angered the Lord. So most of you here probably know this about Solomon. He loved many foreign women and his heart turned away from the Lord. Later in his life, Solomon had a burning passion for foreign women. He sang that old Blue Oyster cult song to each one of them. I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning for you and you and you and you and you and you. One after another, all the way up to 1,000. I'm burning for you times 1,000. However, our knowledge of Solomon's burning with passion for foreign women, his later years... All of that understanding about his later years may skew our reading of the text in 1 Kings chapter 3. We cannot read Solomon chapter 11 into Solomon chapter 3. We have to keep that in mind as we look at our passage today. The Solomon of chapter 11 is not the Solomon of chapter 3, just like in Star Wars. The young Anakin Skywalker who is pod racing on the planet Tatooine, he is not the same Anakin Skywalker who force chokes his very pregnant wife Padme on the planet Mustafar. You can't read what you know about Solomon later on in his life into the passage early in his life. You, just like in the TV show Breaking Bad, you can't read into the early episodes of what you know Walter White will become later in the series. You have to take Solomon as he is presented in the text in chapter 3. He is a young man who loves the Lord. He is a young man who knows that he is a great sinner in great need of a great Savior. In her book, Found in Him, The joy of the incarnation and our union with Christ. Elise Fitzpatrick says this. Think of it. Jesus has already suffered for all your idolatries. For every time you worship something or someone other than him. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are loved. You don't need what those other gods are promising you. You already have everything in him. Here's the good news. You don't need anything more than you already have. You don't need great wealth or status or cars or luck, a truly meaningless word. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are blessed. You are loved. You don't need to have a bigger houses or assure yourself of your worth because you know how to play the ponies or beat the system or because some person finally approves of you. Jesus has paid it all, given it all, and loved you immeasurably. And that's what we'll see with Solomon today. 
though he is the newly crowned king of Israel and one of the most powerful men in his day, and even though he has all that he could ever want or need at his fingertips, still the most heart-stabilizing truth that he had was that he was loved by Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. In fact, Solomon's other name was Jedidiah, which means loved by Yahweh. As 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon was loved by the Lord. He was even given that name. Jedediah, loved by the Lord. This was the great heart-stabilizing truth that Solomon had. And every time Solomon made a sacrifice for his sins, he heard the gospel through these words, you are forgiven and you are righteous And you are loved. And that's the good news that Solomon heard every single time he offered a sacrifice at the tabernacle. And that's the good news that we hear every time we look to Jesus and we remember what he has done for us. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, like we will today, these are the words that we hear. You are forgiven. You are righteous. And you are loved. Believe that today. Now, 1 Kings chapter 3 Verse 1. My introduction was kind of like its own sermon, it feels like. Look at verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So right off the bat, you may be wondering about the sincerity of Solomon's devotion to the Lord. Is he really devoted to Yahweh? I will argue in the positive today. Contrary to most of the commentaries that I have read, everyone seems to throw Solomon under the proverbial bus. But I don't think that's the case here. Not yet, anyway. And I'll show you where in the text that the author has left us clues to Solomon's extravagant devotion to and love for Yahweh. But before I explain to you why I believe that Solomon is being painted in a positive light here, we do have to deal with a few apparent hurdles. Hurdle number one, the author states that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. Can this be wholehearted devotion to the Lord, to marry an Egyptian woman, a foreign woman, not an Israelite. But remember David's words to his son Solomon back in chapter 2. David said, don't forget Yahweh's laws, son. Keep your finger on God's word. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes and commandments and rules and testimonies. And remember what was required of the kings of Israel? They were required to write out a copy of the Mosaic law and continually read it per Deuteronomy chapter 17. So I think that Solomon knew Yahweh's laws and took them to heart. Solomon knew that the prohibition against marrying foreign women did not include Egyptian women. 
Exodus chapter 34 speaks of it. Deuteronomy 7 does. Now, God did forbid the Israelites from marrying Canaanite women, the inhabitants of the land, but Egyptian women never made the list of girls you could not marry. As one commentator states, such a union was not forbidden by the law, which only forbade alliance with the Canaanites. Nor was the daughter of Pharaoh apparently implicated in the charge brought against Solomon's other foreign wives of having led him into idolatry, 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, practically, was it wise? Probably not. You can take the woman out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the woman. And so I think the decision will come back to haunt Solomon because he will eventually marry many foreign women who in fact do turn his heart away from the Lord and he worships their gods. But I do not believe that it was a direct violation of the Lord's commands. In fact, in chapter 11, Solomon's Egyptian wife is not included in the list of foreign women who the Israelites were forbidden to marry. She's kind of separated, specifically separated from the other women in the list. And so this marriage was most likely a political move, as pointed out in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It says this, The rendering made an alliance with Pharaoh reflects accurately the literal Hebrew, became Pharaoh's son-in-law, which stresses the relationship between father-in-law and bridegroom rather than between the bride and the bridegroom. This was a rather common practice as a means of cementing and maintaining international agreements and securing a nation's borders. Okay, so this marriage, it could have just been a political move, or it could have been a fairy tale romance, or as some believe, it was a violation of God's commands. But whichever view you take, we can't throw Solomon under the bus. Now, for me, contrary to many commentators and preachers, I'm not ready to throw Solomon under the bus at this point. And here's why. At this point in the narrative, Solomon loves the Lord. He loves Yahweh wholeheartedly. Yes, Solomon is a sinner in desperate need of grace. He's a sinner just like you and me. But at this point in his life, as opposed to later, Solomon loves the Lord. In fact, that's what verse 3 says. It's kind of hard to argue with verse 3. If you want to pick a fight with verse 3, let me tell you, verse 3 is always going to win. Because verse 3 tells us Solomon loved Yahweh, period. So, hurdle number one is that Solomon married an Egyptian woman. Hurdle number two, the author states that Solomon sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Look at verse two. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, a red flag was probably raised in your mind when you heard that verse that people sacrifice at the high places. You're probably ready to throw Solomon under the bus right now. But let me explain why I don't think that what the people are doing here is wrong when it says that they sacrificed at the high places. 
First question, what were the high places? The high places were these elevated areas that pagans, namely the Canaanites, would offer sacrifices to their gods. The idea behind the high place was that kind of the higher up you were, the more likely the gods were to hear you. And that's why many gods were worshipped on top of mountains. But most of the time in the Old Testament, worship at the high places was banned by the Lord. And the reason being that the high places were affiliated with other gods. And the Lord knew that if his people began worshiping in these areas, then they would be tempted to incorporate pagan worship practices into their own worship. Now, imagine that. Imagine God's people incorporating worldly practices into their worship. Imagine God's people assimilating with culture. Could that ever be? Sadly, as we all know, yes. But at this point in Israel's history, that is not the case. We do read in several passages where the Lord actually did approve of worship at the high places. For instance, Samuel was sacrificing and blessed the offerings made at the high places in 1 Samuel 9. As the representative for Yahweh, Samuel, by oracle from the Lord, gave Saul instructions and told Saul to go worship at the high places in Gibeon. In fact, at the time of David's reign, the Mosaic tabernacle was located at the high place in Gibeon. David took the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle of the Lord, which was at the high place in Gibeon, and David brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies to Jerusalem. He then made a tent for the ark, and worship was taking place at two places. This is kind of like the very first instance of a church having you know, two campuses. Here it is in the Old Testament. At the high place in Gibeon, where the tabernacle was, that's where people worshiped, and at Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent that David had built for it. So at the time of Solomon taking over the kingdom from his father David, we have the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, And then we have sacrifices that are being made there outside the tent where the ark was. And then we also have the mosaic tabernacle on the high place at Gibeon where sacrifices were being made. So when we read in verse 2 that the people were sacrificing at the high places, and when we read in verse 3 that Solomon himself sacrificed at the high places, this is not describing a negative worship practice. The reason The people and Solomon are sacrificing at the high places as given in verse 2. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. The author of 1 Kings is giving us, in verses 2 through 3, an allusion to a state of incompleteness that did not end until the temple was completed. That's the reason why worship was happening at the high places. Because the temple of the Lord had not been built yet. You know, from 1 Samuel, David said, I'm going to build a name, a temple for you, a house for you, Lord. And the Lord said, no, you're not. You're a man of blood. I'm going to build a house for you and make your name and your kingdom live on. And your son's going to be the one who builds a temple for me. So they're worshiping at the high places where the Mosaic tabernacle was because Solomon had not built the temple yet. And they worshiped at Gibeon Because that's where the tabernacle was. That's where you went to church, if you will. So we have to be very careful not to read Solomon chapter 11 into Solomon chapter 3. Solomon 
loves the Lord here. He loves the Lord. Unless you think I'm crazy, let the author of 1 Kings tell you about Solomon's heart. Look again at verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. There's a lot more I could say about those Hebrew words there, but I had to cut that out of my manuscript. Continuing, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So the first thing that we notice about Solomon here is that the text says Solomon loved Yahweh. If you want to throw Solomon under the bus, you cannot get past this verse. And get this, because this is going to knock your socks off. Are you ready? I'm pretty sure that this is the only place in the Old Testament where it is said that an individual loved the Lord. Think about that. This is the only place in the Old Testament that says that someone loved the Lord. And who is it? Solomon, the guy that every commentator wants to throw under the bus. He's the only guy in the Old Testament that says, this guy loved the Lord. And we want to throw him under the bus. And the author tells us this about Solomon, that Solomon walked in the Lord's commands just like his father David. Was Solomon perfect? Of course not. That's why he's offering sacrifices at the tabernacle in Gibeon. Because he is a sinner. In the Old Testament, people's walk with the Lord is black and white. You either love Yahweh and are walking in the statutes of his commandments, or you're not. And so Solomon is walking in the statutes of his father David, who was also a sinner. And we all know David's dirt, the only difference between Solomon and David at this point was that Solomon worshipped at the great high place at Gibeon, where the Mosaic Tabernacle was, and David worshipped in Jerusalem outside the tent that held the Ark of the Covenant. So what did Solomon's worship at the high place in Gibeon consist of? 1,000 burnt offerings. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of cows. And what's very interesting here is the tense of the Hebrew phrase Solomon used to offer. It's an imperfect tense in the Hebrew language that emphasizes this repeated, uh, continual, habitual action in past time. That means that Solomon was repeatedly and continually and habitually offering 1,000 plus burnt offerings. And so picture Solomon traveling six miles northwest from Jerusalem to Gibeon with 1,000 animals in tow on a continual basis, headed there to Gibeon to get his worship on. Solomon had not forgotten the laws of God. He kept his finger on God's word. Solomon, like every good Israelite, valued the book of Leviticus because the book of Leviticus was the manual on how to worship the Lord, how to worship the Lord properly in a God-honoring way. Do you know how the book of Leviticus begins? It begins with good news. The very first chapter of Leviticus is all about the gospel. It's about how sinners can be made right with and accepted by God, by a holy God. Leviticus 
is not a boring book. It begins with good news. It begins with the gospel. It begins with the good news that God is pleased with substitutionary sacrifice. Someone dies in your place for your sins. It begins with the burnt offering, which is all about acceptance, how God accepts sinners into his presence. And the burnt offering is what Solomon offered up to Yahweh on a repeated basis. Now, certainly he offered the other sacrifices that are mentioned in Leviticus, but here the author of 1 Kings tells us he specifically offered a thousand burnt offerings on a continual basis. So let's take a few moments to look in detail at the burnt offering in Leviticus 1 because it will show us exactly what Solomon was doing in worship. The burnt offering was also called the whole burnt offering or the holocaust offering because the entire animal was sacrificed and then all of the animal was consumed and burned up with fire on the altar. In some sacrifices, the animal would be cooked and a portion would be returned to the worshiper where they would eat in the presence of the Lord. It prefigured communion. But the burnt offering was consumed and burned up in its entirety. Everything went up in smoke. And the burnt offering meant that you were accepted by God, that you were welcome in His presence. When the animal was completely burned up on the altar, God was telling the worshiper, you are forgiven, and you are righteous, and you are loved. You're accepted. You're welcome. The burnt offering was all about being accepted by God being welcomed into his presence. And so worshipers would offer a bull or a cow or a goat or a sheep or a pigeon, depending on their economic standing. Anybody could come. Whatever your economic standing, anyone was welcome into the Lord's presence. And the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of the animal, signifying the transfer of his sin, his guilt, onto the animal that was dying in his place. They were transferring all of their guilt, all of their sin, all of their shame onto this animal who was dying in their place as their substitute. And then they would kill the animal by slitting its throat. And as the animal kicked and screamed and struggled and moaned for life, the worshiper was keenly aware that this animal was dying in his place for his sins. This animal was taking your blame so that you could be accepted by God. And so as the worshiper, you knew that it should have been your blood that was being shed, but instead, it's this animal. And then God chose blood as a graphic way to ensure the death of the victim because life is in the blood. And then the priest would dash the blood on the corners of the altar as a public witness that the sacrifice had been made. And so the priest would catch the blood in a bowl and splash the blood around the corners of the altar. And then they would flay and cut the animal into different pieces and they would separate the parts. And then the priest would wash parts of the animal. The entrails and the legs would be washed with water. And then all of the animal would be placed on the altar to be burned up. And then finally, the animal parts would be placed on the altar. And fire would consume and burn up the entire thing. Now, imagine 
the smell. You ever have a neighbor barbecue and you can smell it? And you're like, oh man, I'm craving tri-tip right now. You ever have that happen? That's what this sacrifice produced. A sweet aroma went throughout the tabernacle courtyard as the animal was completely burned up. Not that God has nostrils and he likes to smell barbecue. The point is that this wonderful aroma meant that something had given its life for your sin. When you breathe that in, I was like... Oh, man, that smells good. That steak smells good. When you breathe that in, you were reminded that this animal gave its life for your sin. Atonement had been made. You could smell that your sins were forgiven. You could actually smell that your sins were forgiven forgiven. The smell of barbecue tri-tip was good news that your sins were forgiven and that you had been accepted by God. And people don't like to read the book of Leviticus. This is why we need a scratch and sniff Bible. Because people would read Leviticus then. If you could get a scratch and sniff Bible and scratch the pages of Leviticus 1 and you could smell tri-tip, you would never leave the book of Leviticus You would tell your friends in November, I'm still reading in the book of Leviticus. I just can't leave. It's so good. But we must remember this important aspect of the burnt offering. God didn't just accept the worshiper and accept the offering. It actually gave him pleasure. Three times in Leviticus chapter 1, we read the phrase, phrase, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And these were the sacrifices that Solomon, the man who loved Yahweh, was sacrificing by the thousands. And by doing so, Solomon was saying, I am completely sinful. And Lord, you have total claim on my life. I am wholeheartedly yours. That's what you were saying when you offered the burnt offering. And that's what Solomon is saying. So picture Solomon repeatedly, continually, habitually bringing burnt offerings to the Lord by the thousands. Could it get mundane? Yes. Could it become rote? Yes. But I picture Solomon bringing sacrifice after sacrifice to the Lord because he loved the Lord. And Solomon repeats the process over and over and over again. Solomon says, I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning for you, Lord. One after another, all the way up to 1,000. I'm burning for you times 1,000. And so understand this, Grace. This is reminding us that we never graduate from the gospel. We never cease to need the forgiveness of our sins. We never outgrow our need for grace. We never advance beyond God's mercy. We never stop needing Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This is what Solomon is doing here. Solomon never graduated from the gospel. He never ceased to need the forgiveness of his sins. He never outgrew his need for grace. He never advanced himself beyond God's mercy. 
He never stopped needing Jesus Christ crucified, crucified and risen from the dead, which is what the 1,000 burnt offerings were pointing to and were anticipating. Jesus' work on the cross for us. And that's why we continually preach Christ crucified here at Grace because we always need it. Martin Luther said, the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough for it cannot be grasped well enough. And every time we preach and every time we rehearse the gospel around here, the Holy Spirit is saying these words to us. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are loved. You are accepted. You are welcome in God's presence. So those who want to throw Solomon under the bus don't realize that if Solomon was not living a life pleasing to the Lord, then the Lord would not have appeared to him and said, as he does in verse 5, ask what I shall give you. If Solomon is not walking in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, the Lord would not appear to him. As he does, we'll look at it next week in verse 5 and say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Here's a blank check, Solomon. If he's not living for the Lord, the Lord's not going to show up and say, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. When Solomon or any worshiper says to the Lord, I come to you by the blood of someone else, I come by the blood of Jesus, I am completely sinful, you have total claim on, li- on my life. When a worshiper says that, the Lord is pleased. When you come to the Lord and say, I come to you by the blood of someone else, I come to you by the blood of your son Jesus, I know I am completely sinful and you have total claim on my life. When you can say that to God, he is pleased. We see this in Solomon's life, but we see it most clearly at the cross. Now obviously, The burnt offering was anticipating what Jesus did when he died in our place and for our sin. Jesus paid the price with his blood and it brought God pleasure. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God was pleased when his son laid down his life. It was a sweet smelling sacrifice, a pleasant aroma. God looked upon the shed blood. He looked upon the sacrifice of his son Jesus dying on the cross in our place and for our sins and God was pleased Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf and for our sins was a fragrant aroma to God. God the Father looked upon His Son and looked upon His sacrifice and it was a sweet-smelling fragrance to Him. It brought Him pleasure. Just like when you smell tri-tip cookie. And it brings God pleasure every single time we rehearse what Jesus did for us, which is what we're going to do shortly when we celebrate communion. Let's close with something Ian Duguid says about God's burning love. But before we do that, you know, I felt really impressed this morning as I was praying 
to say what I'm about to say, and I think it was the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear a voice. It was an impression. It was thoughts. Uh, if I was a charismatic, I would have words for it. Um, if that bothers you that, that I sense the Spirit saying something to me, then you can, you can just say that was the pizza I ate yesterday. I don't care. But this is what I thought this morning. That there's people here who are running from God. Come home today. Some of you have drifted. You were at a point in your life at some point last year, last month, where you were Solomon chapter 3 in love with Jesus. And you came to him and said, you're my everything. And over time, your heart has drifted. And you're at that Solomon chapter 11 point in your life where you're, you're drifting and turning away from your first love. And Jesus would say to you today, come home. Turn away from that sin. It's a lie. That extra relationship is a lie. Turn away from it. Kill it. Repent of it. Confess. And come back home to Jesus. Run. Don't mosey away from that sin. Don't mosey away from that sin that's calling out to you. You're listening to you and you're warning. Don't mosey away. Kill it by the Spirit. Kill it with the Word of God. And run back to Jesus. And He will welcome you with open arms and love on you. Don't drift. Don't just, I think we'll just mosey away from that sin. Kind of keep halfway between Jesus and the sin and kind of flirt a little here and kind of flirt a little there. Walk away and come home. Jesus will receive you. Repent, confess your sins and book it and hightail it to Jesus. And if you can't move and you're there and you're like, I killed the sin and I'm paralyzed and I'm weak, Jesus will come pick you up. He will carry you home. He will put you on his shoulder. The one lamb that walked away from the 99 and he will carry you home if you can't. Just say, Jesus, come get me. That's what I felt the Spirit wanted me to say before we close with this quote. If that's you, I would say, come home. He loves you. He will welcome you. Ian Duguid says this about God's burning love for his people. When Jesus calls you to himself, he doesn't just say to you, I love you for now. Let's see how this works out as we go along. If you are holy enough and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, then maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No, When God calls you to himself, he legally binds himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. The security of your salvation does not rest, therefore, on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. Rather, it rests on his initial and irrevocable choice. God is not stuck with you forever. As if you had both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. God actually loves you. Hard though that may be for us to grasp sometimes. He knows you inside and out with all of your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. Nothing less than such an intense, burning love could ever explain the cross. 
A mild fondness for humanity would not have been enough to propel the infinite, glorious God of all creation to humble himself to the point of taking on flesh and becoming a mere mortal. Why would the eternal one enter time and take on all the limitations of our tiny form? Burning love. Why would the Holy One enter a sinful world and befriend deeply broken sinners? Burning love. The Father who now sees us united to His Son delights to gaze on us with the same intensity with which He delights in His own Son. And that's what we celebrate here at the table today. Burning love. God's burning love for us. The Lord's Supper is proof of God's burning love for us. And it doesn't matter how many times we fail or have failed, we always come back to the cross. We come back to the cross to be reminded once again of God's unshakable burning love for us. And it does not matter how intense your faith is. It can be small. It can be weak. As long as it's placed in Jesus. Listen, it's not the intensity of your faith that saves you. Jesus is who saves you. His life, His death, His cross, His blood. So you may not have the devotion of Solomon's 1,000 burnt offerings, and that's okay. This table is all about the devotion of Jesus to you. This table is about his burning love for you. That's the point. So today, for those who have repented of their sins, that confess their sins, and they trust in Jesus, he says to you this morning, you are forgiven, you are righteous, you are loved. And if you have not placed your trust in Jesus... See the burning love that God has shown you in the death of his one and only son and come bow your knees before him. Let me ask you a question. Why would you close your heart to someone who loves you with such burning passion? Why would you close your heart to the God who loves you with such burning passion? Come home today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your overwhelming love, your commitment to us. We confess our sins and we repent and we come to this table saying that we're sinners and we come by the blood of someone else. We come by the blood of your son and we are wholeheartedly yours. Would you meet us here now by your spirit and by your grace and strengthen us and renew us and restore us to our first love. In Jesus' name.